That's 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 14. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach, and the stomach for yep. food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All the sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Thanks very much. Good to see you here at the EU public meeting. My name's Rowan. The EU has asked me to give this three-week series on the ethics of dating. And this is the third in our three-week series, so it's coming to the end. This, though, is a series, I hope... For everyone, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, because I hope it gives you a bit of a window into the Christian worldview, where Jesus is at the centre of absolutely everything, including how we think about and how we do dating. As I've said each week, my intention is that this series particularly help Christians care for each other better, whether you're interested in dating or not because Christian holiness is a community concern. It's about us together as God's people. Holiness is not just an individual responsibility. And over these three weeks, we've been using a Christian ethical framework drawn from the Christian Bible, which you can see I've sort of represented up here on the board for you, to think through the ethics of dating. And this framework, as you can see there, has the Lord Jesus at the centre of absolutely everything, because, as we're told in the Christian New Testament, All things have been created in him, by him, and for him, and have been reconciled through him, through his death and resurrection. And so with him at the centre, including of how we think about and how we do dating, we then look at the God-given nature and purpose of the thing concerned, in this case, dating. And out of that understanding, as I tried to represent there on the board, flows the ethical behavioural implications. And the preeminent behavioural implication as we talked about last week, is Christian love. Love that is humble, other-person-centred commitment to their good. And we've taken this framework and we've been trying to apply it to dating, to this Christian understanding of relationships and a Christian ethical perspective, therefore, on dating. And as we've talked about, dating is a way that we have constructed, as human beings, to move from one set of relationships to another, from being celibate siblings in Christ, who relate to each other with absolute purity, to being husband and wife in Christ as Christians in a fully sexual marriage. And as we saw last week, that within 
this Christian framework for understanding relationships, dating has a very particular purpose. The particular purpose that dating has is to make a decision. The decision is, am I willing to make the Christian marriage promises to this particular person? And the key point that I tried to make last week was that once you've understood that that's the purpose of dating within this Christian framework, that purpose has a very significant impact on the nature of dating. Purpose and nature, as God has woven them together, impact upon each other. Because the purpose of dating is to make this particular decision, that has an impact on the nature of dating, that is, dating is temporary. Because once the decision is made and you either decide to get engaged and move on to make those marriage promises to each other, or you decide to not make those promises and go back to being siblings in Christ, either way, the nature of the relationship is temporary. The purpose of dating impacts upon its nature. So today we're going to try and develop this understanding a bit further as we talk about sex, intimacy and dating. But we're going to start by thinking about the Christian marriage promises because that will shed light on that topic. Christian marriage promises made in a Christian wedding service, I don't know if you've been to many weddings, you may not have been to many yet at this stage in your life or maybe you're in that towards the end of uni, you start getting in the wedding zone and it seems like you go through the 21st zone and then you enter the wedding zone. The thing about weddings these days is people like to make up their own vows. They might like to make up their own promises, their vows, and make them to each other. That's all very nice and cute. However, that's not what Christians do usually. Because the, the promises you make in a Christian marriage are not really up for grabs. They're not something that you just create. It's God who's helped us understand what marriage involves and therefore that informs what he's revealed in his word about Christian marriage. That informs the promises we choose to make to each other. So let me read to you the promises that I made, admittedly a long time ago, when I married my wife Jenny. The promises go like this and they're a reflection of what the Bible teaches us about Christian marriage. I, Rowan, in the presence of God, Sort of an interesting thing to say, isn't it, as you make a, make a promise? Because I'm standing there saying this in the presence of a whole bunch of other people. But the particular, but the particular person that I'm drawing attention to is, I, Rowan, in the presence of God. That is, I'm recognising at that moment that this is a promise for which I am accountable to God, but also that we're doing something here in this particular moment that is sanctioned by God, created by God. He is involved in joining us together. Remember Jesus' words that I talked about last week. What God has joined, let no one separate. So I, Rowan, in the presence of God, take you, Jenny, to be my wife. To have and to hold. That's talking about a physical and relational intimacy there, to have and to hold. That's including sex. From this day forward, for better, for worse. It's not something you normally think about when you're there at a wedding and maybe especially as you're making those marriage promises, but yes, your life could end up much worse, more difficult, 
as a result of this marriage. You make the promise with your eyes wide open to the fact that you just don't know really what the future will hold. And even if it does end up worse, you're going to keep this promise. And then we get some examples. For richer, for poorer. In Jenny's case, it was for poorer. In sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. That's very interesting. This is a promise one is making. A decision, a promise, a decision to love and to cherish. I promise to cherish you, to treat you as precious and special, irrespective of whether I feel like that is easy or hard. Just by the by, there's no possible way you could be keeping that promise and ever treat the other person in an abusive fashion, is there? I am promising to love and to cherish you as long as we both shall live. Marriage, unlike dating, is not temporary. Marriage is lifelong. It's a permanent establishment of a new family. This is my solemn vow and promise. So how do you pull that together? What's the Christian understanding of marriage drawn from the Christian Bible reflected in those promises? Here's my little summary. Christian marriage is when a man and a woman from different families voluntarily commit to a lifelong, sexual, exclusive, new family relationship for the good of each other and of the wider world. It's a big promise that you stand there and make if you choose to get married. It's a big promise. It's weighty. And it's also, and I want you to feel this today, it's also glorious in the sense that what, what a glorious thing it is to make and receive that sort of promise. To promise to love like God loves with that commitment that is faithful to the very end. That commitment provides an incredible level of security. That's why married couples ought to be able to sort out their conflicts, their differences, and have conflict together because the marriage itself is not in jeopardy by the very fact that you have this difference, this conflict that you've got to sort out. That's why in marriage... In a Christian understanding of marriage, you don't have to rush sex. You don't have to have awesome sex straight away. Why not? You're married for life. God willing, you've got decades together to work that out, to become really great. So what's the hurry? In a Christian understanding of marriage, you can afford to take, in fact, it's wise to take, the long view when it comes to sex. I remember just before I got married, there was a guy who... I knew well, he was 10 years older than me, he lived down the road, he came up just to see, see me a couple of days before I got married, he just decided to give me some sort of older advice, you know. <laughs> uh, and, he, and one of the things he said was, he said, and I remember it very well, he said, give yourselves 10 years to develop a great sex life. 10 years. Now, I missed it at the moment, I was very polite, I said, oh, thank, thank you. But internally, I'm just going, man, I don't know what your problem was, that it took you so long to work it all out, but come on, it's not going to take us 10 years. 
Well, after I'd been married about 10 years, I knew what he meant. Give yourself a long time to develop a great sex life. You can afford to, right? Because you have made a lifelong commitment to each other. What's the hurry? In fact, I saw him last year. Now, I've been married 20-something years. I saw him last year and I said to him, look, you probably don't even remember this, but you came and you gave me this advice. Yeah, give yourself 10 years, a great sex life. And I said, I've been married more than 20 now. I must say, it just keeps getting better. And he said to me, well, you should wait till you get to 30. <laughs> The commitment that is established, the lifelong security that this provides in the Christian marriage promise provides the right sort of con the context, the safe context for conflicts, for sex. It's where you can be truly honest and vulnerable with the other person because they've promised that no matter what, I'm here and I will stay here with you, for you. The making and keeping of promises like this. Our society no longer really thinks much of a promise. You notice that? We change our minds, we break our promises, and, and we always are quick to claim mitigating circumstances that actually it's really okay, we legitimise them, we maybe justify them. We see politicians break their promises all the time and we, do, we don't really even expect them to keep their promises that they make. And then the media or the political opponents try to burn them for it. But even that strikes us as, frankly, a bit of a waste of time because what's the big deal anyway? We know the journos are just looking for a gotcha moment and the politicians are just playing political point scoring. We, we just don't really care whether someone breaks their promise or not. And we're not that much different ourselves. Sometimes I think we say, yes, I will do that, I will tidy my room, I will fill up the car with petrol, I will, whatever you say, I, yes, I will do that. But I feel like we actually mean, I currently fully intend to do so, but things could always change and I reserve the right to therefore decide differently when the time comes. <laughs> Isn't that what you mean when you say, I will? See, that's a conditional promise. But marriage is an unconditional promise. Whatever happens, for better, for worse, even if we fall out of love, I will keep on loving you. I am promising to humbly keep on working for your good ahead of my own. And the effect of these promises is it creates great security, a safe place to be vulnerable, in fact, and this is where we're moving on to thinking about sex and intimacy, this creates a positive place for the heightened emotional connection that sexual intimacy creates. So let me talk to you a little bit about sex. Sex is a wonderful gift from God. And uh, some people are surprised by this, but the Bible, as God's word to us, is not prudish or quiet when it comes to the goodness, the greatness of sex. Rather, it explicitly celebrates the joy and pleasure of sex. Read the Old Testament book of Song of Songs. It's a funny title for a book, isn't it? Song of Songs. What does that even mean, Song of Songs? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means this is meant to be the song that beats all other songs. This is the ultimate song. Not in terms of its melody, in terms of its content. 
This is the best song. And what's that song about? It's a joyful, passionate celebration sung by a husband and a wife of their sexual love for each other. And when you read it, it's all about hands and eyes and lips and necks and breasts and teeth and chests. It is full on. (laughs) And it's unashamed. And it's the one true living God's word to us about the wonderful gift that sex is from Him to us. But like so many other wonderful gifts of God, we use the freedom that God has given us to misuse the gifts He's given. We use them in ways he He doesn't intend and we end up damaging ourselves and others in the process. This is the case with many of God's good gifts to us. Think about the way we abuse the environment. Instead of tending and caring for it so that it might continue to sustain us, we abuse it. Think about the way we hoard the abundance of resources and wealth that God has given us rather than sharing that wealth as he intends with those in need. Think about the way we've used our ability to invent technologies to harm others rather than to help them which is what love would look like. And we do it with sex too. Sex is a wonderful, powerful gift of God, which as we'll see in a moment, has a significant God-intended purpose within marriage. But like the other good gifts he gives, when we reject his word and his wisdom and his way, and we take sex outside of the purpose for which he created it, we end up with a compromised experience. Our experience of this good gift is less than it could be, less than he means it to be. And worse, the misusing of the good gift damages us and damages others too. And maybe you know the pain of that far too well. So the Bible is very clear to us on its warnings about taking sex outside of the permanent commitment of marriage for which God created it. A good example is the passage that we had read for us from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 to 20. So if you've got your Bible there, it might be useful to open that up just briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 12 to 20, or call it up on your phone, share with the person next to you. The New Testament is very clear that what we do with our bodies really matters. And what we do sexually with our bodies really matters in a particularly profound way. Why? And I'm going to use a lot of terminology here out of our Christian ethical framework. Why is what we do sexually with our bodies particularly profound? Well, it's because of the unifying nature of sex as created by God. The nature and purpose of sex as created by God means that it has a particularly profound effect on us. Now, if you've got your Bible there, you can see the Corinthians were claiming, in verses 12 to 13, three things which meant that they then felt free to take sex outside of marriage. Firstly, they claimed that every sort of behaviour is okay for me as a Christian because I am free in Christ. Secondly, they claimed, it's obvious, they say, food for the body and body for food, but they're not talking about food and and stomach, sorry. They're talking actually about the body and sex. They're claiming 
The body is made for sex, and sex is obviously made for the body. So when we take sex and use it outside of marriage, use it however we like, we're just doing what our bodies are made to do. So what's the big deal? Third point is that they say, well, the body and sex are only temporary anyway. God will eventually destroy them both. So it has no lasting significance anyway. So what's the big deal? So you've got three separate arguments that they're putting to the Apostle Paul about why it doesn't really matter what they're doing in terms of sex. Well, Paul pushes back on each of those arguments. First of all, they say everything is permissible, but he says, but not everything is beneficial. That is, think about what he's doing there. He's saying that consequences are ethically significant. And they should be considered here. Are you actually doing well by yourself and others when you take sex outside of the way God intended it? Secondly, they say everything is permissible, but Paul pushes back and says, but I will not be mastered by anything. He's talking here about what the nature and purpose of being a Christian. That is the reality of our nature as Christians this side of Jesus returning, is that you can be mastered by other things other than the Lord Jesus. Out of your own decision, you can choose to give yourself as a slave to something else. But also what's true of you as a Christian is you should not be mastered by things other than the Lord Jesus because he is at the centre of absolutely everything. So don't go making yourself a slave of sinful behaviour when you should be serving the Lord. And then when they say, well, food for the stomach, stomach for food, and God will destroy both. Well, Paul pushes back on both those two arguments with with two counterfacts. First, he says, well, strictly speaking, you're not just talking about sex. You're talking about sex outside of marriage, what the Bible calls sexual immorality. And despite their claim, he says, no, the body is not made for sexual immorality. The body, he says, is made for the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus for the body. All things have been created, as we've said repeatedly, for the Lord Jesus, including our bodies. Well, what about their claim that it doesn't matter anyway because God will destroy the both? Well, then Paul points out, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead and he will raise us too. Our bodies matter. Our bodies are part of God's redemption project. This body will be resurrected as it was for the Lord Jesus. So what you do with your body really does matter. Paul then builds on this in verses 15 to 17. Have a look there. He says, Our bodies are members of Christ. We are united to Jesus in the Spirit. And he then makes a point, if this is true, if the nature of being a Christian is that you're united to Jesus by the Spirit, to then go and unite yourself through sexual immorality, say say with a prostitute, to unite yourself to a prostitute in the body or in any other sexual immorality is a basic conflict with your spiritual union with Christ. Notice what he says in verse 16. Whoever unites themselves with a prostitute is one with the prostitute in body. For it is said, and he quotes here from Genesis chapter 2 in the Old Testament, the two will become one flesh. Think about that for a moment. He's saying sex has a profound unifying function. The two 
will become one flesh. Sex binds you in profound ways, emotionally, relationally, not merely physically, not merely um, sexually in that moment of intercourse, but sex actually joins you in this profound way with this other person. When you have sex with somebody, you're not merely physically joined. At that moment, you are profoundly united to that person, emotionally, relationally. Now, that profound unifying function of sex is wonderfully helpful within the commitment of marriage because it works a bit like this diagram over here. The commitment that you've made to each other in marriage expresses itself The commitment you've made to each other expresses itself in intimacy, which then through the intimacy, the sexual intimacy you have, and its profound unifying function, it reinforces the commitment that you've made to each other. There is the potential here through this feedback sort of loop between commitment and intimacy for a wonderful upward spiral where your commitment expresses itself in intimacy and that very act of intimacy reinforces the commitment that you have to each other. It's, God's amazing the way he's worked these things out, that sex has this particular unifying function and that the Christian understanding of marriage is a safe place to have that experience, to have to where it, it makes sense. Now, without the commitment of marriage, if you think about it, when we become sexually intimate with another person, we're engaging in this God-given bonding activity, but without the security or the safety of commitment. And just what that means is you're likely to get hurt. It means you're probably going to hurt the other person. It means that your thinking about this other person will become clouded. Because of the intimacy that you've expressed together, you've got all these feelings, these deep feelings for this other person because you've shared your body with them, but you haven't actually made any promises to each other. There's no actual commitment, but the thought now of not being together, that's, that's harder than ever. Paul's point, though, here in the passage is even more fundamental to that. When you do this, when you take sex and intimacy like this outside of the commitment of marriage, you're going against your very union with Jesus in the Spirit. He then builds on this in verses 18 to 20. You can see there he says, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit living in you. You have this spirit union with Jesus, but when you engage in sexual immorality, you're in basic conflict with your fundamental spiritual union. And you're sinning at that point, he says, against your own body, which is where the spirit has taken up residence. Moreover, he says, you are not your own here. You have been bought as a Christian at a price. You belong to God through the redemption Jesus won through his costly death for you. So Paul's twin conclusions there in verse 18 and verse 20. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. As Christians, we don't just go, oh, we try to avoid it. We don't just say, oh, yeah, it's not good for you. No, we run away from it. 
We say sexual immorality, it's just, it's, it's in basic conflict with my relationship with Jesus. I understand that it's against the nature and purpose of the good nature and purpose of sex itself. So we flee from it. We flee sexual immorality, run away from it. And positively, verse 20, we seek to glorify God in our body. What we do in our body, we know really matters. So if you're here, and I know this is always true in the EU, if you're here and you know that as a Christian, you're not walking in holiness with your boyfriend or girlfriend, that actually you're way more sexually intimate than this New Testament picture encourages. You need to repent. You need to actually flee sexual immorality. You need to actually believe God's good word to you, that it's not good for you, it's not good for them, it's not genuine love when there's no commitment like in marriage. You need to repent, but there's a second thing you need to do. You need to receive God's abundant grace to you. Know that he washes us clean of all of our failings. No matter matter what your past, no matter what your present, when we actually repent and come back to Jesus in, in confession and seek his forgiveness, we know he is abundant in his grace and mercy to us. Repent and receive. That's what you need to do. Well, how then do we apply this understanding of sex and its place within marriage when it comes to dating? Well, a couple of things. I've got three sort of points for you. First of all, beware of the idolisation of sex and romantic intimacy. So as we've been talking about, sex is a great gift of God for marriages that helps keep marriages together and out of which then comes children. But sexual experience, let's be clear on this, it is in no way essential or foundational to who any of us are. I'll say that again. Sexual experience is in no way essential or foundational to who, to who any of us are. So, who am I? Well, I, like you, if you've come to Christ by faith, I am an adopted child by grace of a loving Heavenly Father. I'm a co-inheritor of the kingdom to come with the Lord Jesus himself who loved me and gave himself for me. That's who you are if you are in Christ by faith. Your sexual experience and my sexual experience, it's not foundational, it's not essential to who we are. And frankly, praise God for that. Whether your sexual experience is more limited than you would like or whether your sexual experience is much more turbulent and painful than you'd like. As Paul says in this chapter, we've all been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You might say, well, okay, that's great to know, but what what about my sexual desires? I'm just really, really keen for sex. Well, the first thing to say is, sexual desire is not wrong, part of being human. It's how you respond to that desire, what you do with it, that really matters. Glorify God in your body. 
So when you indulge those sexual desires in your mind, indulge them in lustful imagination, well, Jesus is very clear, that's not what holiness looks like. When you give those sexual desires free expression through sexual intimacy with someone to whom you're not married, that's also very clearly not what holiness looks like. Because remember, as a Christian, you're a temple of God's Holy Spirit. He lives within you. You know what one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life is? Self-control. We've told this again and again in the Bible. Galatians 5, 2 Timothy 1, 1 Thessalonians 4. So sexual holiness is not beyond you if you have come to faith in Christ. Not because you're of your superior willpower. No, because His Spirit now lives within you. So in line with the New Testament, I'd say to you, walk in step with the Spirit. Don't resist the Spirit's prompting in your life. Call on His Word and His people to help remind you of what holiness looks like. And my guess is that pretty much everyone in the room underestimates how important self-control is when it comes to sexuality, including for those who are married. You're going, sexual control when I'm married? Surely marriage is actually just, you know, basically sex on tap, right? And if you're a guy, you're probably going, well, yeah, like, isn't it? Well, let me, let me, let me uh, take you into the real story. There are long periods of time in every marriage long periods of time, where you are sharing the same bed, but sex is not happening for one reason or another. Maybe it's illness, maybe it's pregnancy, maybe breastfeeding, maybe it's work stress, or family stress, or financial stress, or kids stress. There's just a lot of stress, basically, you have to deal with. (laughs) Maybe it's mental health concerns, maybe it's just tiredness, maybe it's busyness, maybe it's chronic sickness. It can be months, it can be years, whilst you're lying there next to each other, night after night, no sex on the agenda. Let me ask you, what sort of self-control might that require of you? What about those whose spouse has died, who've been in a fully sexual marriage but are now single again? What's it going to be like for them returning to a celibate life? My point is this. Spirit-empowered self-control is vital for every Christian when it comes to sex. You need that spirit-empowered self-control whether you're single or married. So start training yourself today. Similarly, though, I want to say as Christians, we're liberated from the lie that our world tells us that we need a romantic soulmate to live a full relational life. Why are we liberated from that as Christians? Well, it's because we have a multitude of Christian sisters and brothers in Christ with whom we get to do life together. We get to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and mourn with those who are mourning. We bear one another's burdens. We encourage and spur one another on in love and good deeds. 
The options ought not to be marriage or loneliness. But so often it feels that that's the way things are portrayed, doesn't it? It is on us, the Christian community, to make sure that the unmarried life is not a lonely one. Rather, it should be relationally full because that's what love in the Christian community looks like. And in fact, marriage versus loneliness is a false dichotomy anyway. If you think that is the way things are going to fall, I either get married or I'm just going to be lonely, then you've bought the Hollywood rom-com lie that the secret to your emotional fulfilment and keeping lifelong loneliness at bay is finding your romantic soulmate. Well, again, let me take you into reality. Talk to some couples who've been married for 15, 20, 30 years. There are lots of lonely marriages. If you've put all your emotional eggs into this one find my soulmate and marry them basket, you are going to be very disappointed. But in his kindness, God has given us one another, a whole family of sisters and brothers in Christ, amongst whom we share life together following Jesus. The answer to our emotional and relational fulfilment was never intended by God to be find a marriage partner. Under his kindness, if you do decide to get married and get married, your spouse might be somebody who meets some of those needs for you, but no marriage will ever be able to bear all of your emotional and relational needs. It was never meant to. That's why God has given us each other. Well, how then does some of this work out when it comes to intimacy? The reality, as I said, is that dating is a temporary relationship. So therefore, given the way that commitment and intimacy in God's plans are meant to work together, when you're in a dating relationship and there is no permanent commitment to each other, being overly intimate with one another may be foolish because it clouds reality. It makes you think that you're closer to this person and more committed to them than is actually the case. It's just the hormones speaking at that point, not your brain, well, not your, not reality. In fact, the experience of being intimate with this person may encourage you to commit to this person, to decide to get married to them, when actually they're not a very wise choice. If you make yourself, how can you, how might you be overly intimate with somebody? Well, if you make yourself overly vulnerable, if you share too much, not just about physical intimacy, it's if you share maybe the deep, the deepest things of your life when got no actual commitment that this person's going to be there tomorrow for you, are you actually just opening yourself up to a whole, so, whole lot of hurt? Because when you do share the deep things and they're kind to you, you feel so much closer to them, don't you, at that point? Maybe we just need caution about how much we share at what point we are along the dating pathway. If you make out a lot, if you're physically intimate, if you see each other naked, if you touch each other in sensual, sexual ways, let alone if you masturbate each other or have oral sex or sleep together, the chances are you're probably physically going to enjoy that experience. You're probably going to want more of it. And you're unlikely to think about breaking up at that point. Now, in the right context, the enjoyment and wanting more of that 
experience is a good thing, namely when you've made a commitment to each other to stay together for life, that intimacy helps reinforce your commitment to each other. But if you're dating, the reality is it's temporary. And sexual intimacy actually makes it more difficult for you to make a clear decision. In fact, it may lead you to make a poor decision. And here's another way you can be overly intimate with each other. You may not agree with this, but I think even praying together for each other can build an intimacy that is out of step with the actual commitment. Because how much commitment have you actually made here when you're dating? Well, the answer is not much. You made a commitment to be godly to each other, because Jesus is at the centre of absolutely everything, and to not date another person at the same time. But that's about it. There's not much commitment, really, in dating. And so, therefore, maybe the level of intimacy should be commensurate with that. Not much. What am I suggesting? Well, I'm not going to lay down rules or laws for you because that's not the Christian way. That's not the way of grace. But what I am trying to do is educate you about the reality of intimacy, how it heightens our emotional connection and how we can then confuse that with an actual commitment or an explicit promise to the other person. And I want you, therefore, to be wise in what sort of intimacy you permit and what sort of intimacy you share. Now, so we're praying. I encourage Christian couples to pray. Pray for each other, but not with each other. Don't pray pray for each other when you're apart. And if you want to pray when you're together, why not pray for other people? Pray for other things. Pray for what God's doing in the world. There's lots of good things you've been praying for that are focused you as a couple outwards rather than inwards at each other. What about physical intimacy? Well, I'll share with you some wisdom here from some other Christian writers. Lewis Smedes wrote this. He said, when there are no clear moral rules, right? As we said, there are no clear moral rules. Here we know, yes, okay, don't sleep together. No sexual immorality, but exactly how does that work out in sort of, do we hold hands, do we kiss, do we, like, how do you work it out? He says, when there's no clear moral rules, we need to make our own rules, rules of strategy. Not moral rules for everyone, but rules that tell us how far to go and when to stop. We can make our own rules of strategy so that we will know in advance what we will do before we get blown away by the whirlwind of passion. Making rules not on the run, making rules beforehand. That requires you to actually talk about it. Uh, Hashtag awkward. That's going to (laughs) be... If you as a couple can't have a conversation just about... What are you comfortable with? What am I comfortable with? What do we think is going to be honouring to Jesus in that? And then stick to it. Well, if you can't have that conversation, how are you going to... How would you ever have that conversation in marriage? Because in marriage, you need to talk about sex. And yes, it is awkward. You need to learn to do it, though. It's essential. Now, Lauren Winner is another Christian writer. She wrote a great book called God and Sex, maybe, or something. I can't... Real Sex. It's called Real Sex. Um, I'm going to share her advice. She's speaking about when she started to date her husband, whose name is Griff. They're American. Um, (laughs) She says here, We got in the habit of taking an evening walk on the lawn, the architectural heart of the University of Virginia, like walking through the quad, right? We usually began our walks by the dome-shaped rotunda, 
you know, a rotunda, it's those round things that, you know, they put a band up on the band play and, you know, it's got some steps. Right. We'd start our walks by the dome-shaped rotunda and end up at Cabell Hall. Griff's friend Greg, a campus pastor at the University of Virginia, sized up the situation and gave us this piece of guidance. Don't do anything sexual that you wouldn't be comfortable doing on the steps of the rotunda. Griff and I took Greg's word to heart. We even climbed up on the rotunda steps one night and kissed to our heart's content and then said, well, that's it, there's our line. We don't really feel comfortable stripping our clothes off up here in front of the rotunda. And that became our mantra, on the steps of the rotunda. Other people have suggested a paternal guideline, only touch your boyfriend or girlfriend the way you would touch them if your father were in the room, but that image is a little too Freudian, overdetermined <laughs> over and weird for me. I prefer to picture the grounds of the University of Virginia. Griff and I, she continues, both learned a few good things with our on the steps of the rotunda kissing. The rotunda rule established in us a certain discipline and perhaps a little disciplined sexuality might itself be good preparation for marriage. She's absolutely right with that. Our kissing also inculcated in us a certain respect for the freedom of limitations. We kissed without guilt because we knew we'd made this decision with clear heads and in conversation with others. We knew where we'd drawn our line and we knew we were firmly to one side of it. So many Christian couples talk for years about the guilt they feel over the way they behaved inappropriately with each other whilst they were still dating, before they had such commitment to each other. Maybe you yourself carry some of the guilt and stories and feelings about what's gone on in your past. Remember, there is always forgiveness and redemption and grace in the Lord Jesus. But draw some helpful boundaries. Draw some rules of strategy that ref reflect the reality of a low level of commitment in dating. Okay, I've run out of time. Do I have time for any questions? Yes! i am just made that decision. <laughs> give, me, give me two questions and I'll be super quick. Um, let's go... Are these your questions or no, from... Okay, right. <laughs> How does divorce fit in uh, the Christian context of marriage? How does divorce fit? That's a big question. My... I think Jesus is fairly clear that marriage is for life and, he perm and the Bible permits divorce as a way of securing safety, safety, I think, for those who are in, in danger of being victims through a divorce situation. But I think Jesus' basic idea is that marriage is for life. When things go bad in a marriage, we need to think carefully about what genuine love looks like, love with wisdom. There are very many complicated situations. What do you do if someone is not safe in their marriage? The primary thing that love says is get them to safety. And the other person needs to come to repentance and a... And a I think, a demonstrated practice of repentance before I would ever encourage somebody to go into, back into um, close proximity of that relationship again. But there's lots of wise, you know, more things to say there. One last one. If sexual desires aren't bad, then what are we to do with them? Are we told to just suppress those feelings until we get married? No, as I said, what you need to do is, you don't suppress them, you need to use spirit-empowered self-control to work out actually how to Live in holiness in the midst of those desires. Don't indulge in them, either in your mind or in your body, 
that actually what you need to do is seek the wisdom and encouragement of others to live in holiness at that point under self-control. Is that hard work? Yes. Is that possible for you? Absolutely, if you're a Christian, because you've got the Holy Spirit inside you. Cool. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his obedient life, his death and his resurrection, that he is now Lord of everything, Lord over our lives, that he restores our relationship with you. Thank you that we are saved into a community of believers, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage each other. We thank you that your spirit indwells in us. Father, we ask that we, as followers of Jesus, would be committed to the good of one another in love. Help us to flee from sexual morality and help us to honour you with our bodies. We ask that your spirit might be working us to know that godliness is a community concern and that we might be truly on for living godly lives. We pray this for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen. Amen.